Hey y'all, Alex Barinka here, head of external affairs at Vera Shop and host of Finding Inspo, the first ever shoppable podcast where I sit down with founders, creators, and influencers from across the retail world and pick their brains for information you can use in life and in business. What I'm most interested in is where they are finding inspo and how they turn that inspiration into reality. Because that ability to actually take an idea and turn it into a real product that others love is what really makes them different. Now, before this episode, I had a bet with some friends that I could definitely spend the entire show talking about a singular wine glass. Because it's not any wine glass, it's THE wine glass. And it was created by British design wonderkind Richard Brendan in collaboration with one of the most decorated names in wine, Jancis Robinson. She's a wine critic who is a master of wine, has won multiple James Beard awards, and even advises for Queen Elizabeth II's wine cellar. Like I said, this isn't just any wine glass. And after you listen to this episode, I am convinced you'll think it's the only wine glass you'll ever need. Literally. It was purpose-built and extensively tested by Jancis and her team to work with all kinds of vino, from white and red to sparkling and even sherry. I had a delightful conversation with designer Richard Brendan about this magical glass, what it was like working with Jancis Robinson, and all the special touches they put into that lovely vessel. We started with Richard's background and how he smashed onto the luxury table and barware scene back when he was still serving drinks in various pubs just to make a living. So technically, we didn't just talk about that one wine glass the whole time, but I would still argue to my betting friends that that bit of conversation was still about the glass. It's the origin story of how, in just his 20s, Richard was taking innovative, never-before-executed ideas and turning them into objects of beauty for your home. It's the tale of how his appreciation of the rich history of British ceramics led to creating a sommelier favorite line in a whole other medium. His journey to learning how to combine inspiration and function is, in fact, where the wine glass was birthed into this world. So when did you get kind of your first interest in design and how did you kind of take off on that path? So my my first interest in design actually goes right back to when I was a small child and um, my mum used to take me to pottery classes. So from the age of about, I don't know, probably four, I was going to pottery classes and I really fell in love with ceramics at, at that young age. And as much as I liked all types of art and design, ceramics was the thing that I always ended up going back to. What was it about ceramics that got you to keep going back? I think I think there was just something very satisfying for me about taking a ball of clay and making it into something and actually being able to make something useful. Um, you know, it, it's, it's such a simple um, sort of uh, process when you're working with clay that's literally dug out of the ground and you're using your hands just to form it into something. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, just from, from a young age, I just loved the fact that I could I could take that material and I could make something and I could make a, a mug or a pot and it could then actually be used. Um, so so I loved that. And uh, then fast forward a few years, I left high school and I ended up uh, studying product and furniture design at university in London. Uh, but I still loved ceramics and I actually loved any material which you could mold or 
kind of form in in that way so i think things like resin and glass and uh, you know other materials which you can work with in that way i started to become very interested in and you did it seems like you did really like the utility of it too is that right you you know you're not just making art for art's sake um everything you've talked through even in these first few minutes seems like you're very focused on um taking something and actually having some use out of it in addition to it being something beautiful yeah, I think for me that's really important. I think, you know, um I I love fine art and I love painting and I you know, I have huge respect for artists that make beautiful work, but for me I just always wanted to make something that was usable and being able to create something which is both usable and, you know, more and more with my work a focus on uh, functioning and uh, functioning as well as something can function um, has become very important and uh, at the same time making sure the products that I design uh, are not only functional but they're beautiful as well um, you know and I think when you can combine those two things you end up with products which are, are really special. So you were back uh, doing furniture design. You were still thinking about uh, ceramics and similar materials. What happened next? So at the same time as I was studying uh, product design, I was also working in a, a pub on Portobello Road. Um, you know, as a student, I needed to make a bit of money. Um, and Portobello Road in London is famous for its antique market. So every Saturday, the whole road springs into life with uh, all of these antique dealers. And on my way into work, I would stop and I'd look at the antiques every Saturday morning before I started work. And over a number of weeks, I started to realise um, that there were lots and lots of antique sources that didn't have teacups. Um, and it's because, uh, as I realised after time and talking to antique dealers, people smash a lot more teacups than <laughs> saucers. Um, you know, they're, they're the thing which is being picked up and they've got a handle which can get broken off. So I thought it was really interesting that there were all of these beautiful antique saucers without cups. And uh, I, I started to buy the most beautiful ones and take them back to my studio. And I was trying to think of a way of making them useful again. And um, I had this idea of I could make a cup that was mirrored on the outside. Uh, when you sit it on these beautiful patterned antique saucers, it would actually reflect the pattern. Um, so that was an idea. And that idea uh, led me to uh, try and find a manufacturer. And I went to a, a city in the UK called Stoke-on-Trent, uh, which has been the centre of British ceramics for over 400 years. And... Uh, I I was very lucky. My first trip to Stoke, I actually found someone who was able to make my idea. And I, I didn't think I was going to be able to find a manufacturer. I thought it was a lovely idea. And I just thought that would be the end of it. I'd go, right. And, go and, and I have no I have no intimate knowledge like you do of, of, of how to create these kind of things. But turning a mirror, something that is typically a flat plane into something as delicate as a teacup seems like quite the challenge. Yeah, I mean, the way we actually did it originally um, is we uh, hand painted the cups on the outside with uh, gold or platinum. 
And if you use a certain type of gold or a certain type of platinum, um, which have been used to decorate ceramics for a long time, so this isn't new technology, but if you use a certain type, uh, it actually is very reflective. And if you apply that absolutely perfectly without any imperfections, you end up with a completely perfect mirrored finish. So that was how we did that to start with. Um, and that was you know, really, that's, that's how I ended up having a prototype. I, I, I made a prototype. I then um, showed that collection at my degree show. And uh, there was a retailer in London called Wolf and Badger. Um, in fact, they're still around. They, they have a store in, uh, in New York as well. Um, and Wolf and Badger were running a graduate design competition. And uh, I entered that and they started selling my Reflect collection, as it's called. And that was really, um, that was the starting point for me. They had my teacups and saucers in the shop and then a journalist from the Financial Times came in and saw saw the collection and wanted to write a feature about it. And then a few weeks later, a buyer from uh, Le Bon Marché in Paris came in and they wanted to stock the cups as well. And, you know, at that point, I had just left design school. Um, I was actually living in Colorado, working in a ski resort, taking a year out after university. <laughs> and all of this stuff started happening. And uh, I it was it was kind of the wrong way around. I had a product. Uh, but I didn't have a brand or a business. So I then had to kind of go back to the drawing board and decide what my brand was all about. And uh, I really decided my brand was going to be all about trying to regenerate heritage craft industries. And, and, and that kind of goes back in a really nice way to this idea of the mirror and this idea of you being back on, uh, what was it, Portobello Road and seeing all the antique de- dealers, right? A mirror in itself, uh, true to the name of the series, is a reflection. And you were inspired by reflex- reflecting uh, the beauty that was left in these antique saucers. Can you kind of talk through why that was so important to you? Because I do think a lot of people these days are so focused on creating something that's so new and so different than the past that sometimes they um, lose that reflectiveness of the beauty of what has been created in the past. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, if you look at antique objects and you spend a long time looking at antiques as I have because of buying pieces for the Reflect collection, you start to realize that there are all of these unbelievably beautiful well-made things which have been made over the last however many centuries and I think when antiques are absolutely at their best it's really really hard to place them in time because they look totally relevant today and they're still beautiful and the design is still so good Um, so my way of designing is all about looking to the past And I actually think it's impossible to create something truly unique or truly original unless you have a really firm understanding of what's come before. Because if you don't understand what's come before, you might think you're doing something original, but there's a really good chance that someone's done it already. Um, And I also think, you know, it's, it's so important to not try and do something that's uh, weird and out there because actually, you know, we want to create products which people are going to love in 100 years. And 
I personally believe the best form of uh, sustainability is longevity. If you create products which are timeless and have longevity, well, people aren't going to want to throw them away in five years. They're going to want to keep them or they're going to pass them on to other people. Um, so so for me, that way of working is just so important and, and so integral to everything we do. Um, so I think for me, I really like to get to understand the material and the process I'm working in. And, um, you know, actually going and spending some time in, in the uh, factories with the producers that we work with and understanding how they work and what they do and why they do it. And, and then that really allows you to push the boundaries and decide whether you can actually challenge uh, some of the constraints which which they might say they have. And, and something I've learned is, you know, manufacturers always want to do something in the easiest, quickest, cheapest way because it creates them less problems. And for most people, that's what most people want when they're making a product. They want to make it cheaper because they want to bring the cost down so they can either sell it for less or they can make more margin. Um, whereas the way I think and we think as a brand is we're always trying to create products which are absolutely as good as they can be. And if that means we're going to do it in a slower, more handmade way, we will because it's going to give us a better product. And at the end of the day, the consumer is going to enjoy that product so much more. and It's going to give them so much more satisfaction. And because we choose to make our products with heritage craft industries uh, in Europe at the moment, but I'm sure we will work with industries in other countries in the future, our products are never going to be the cheapest products. Um, so we have to, I think it's the only way we can make our products successful, is we have to make sure our products are better and that they are more beautiful and they feel better and they function better. So I do want to get back to your product because uh, you've talked through how the origins of your kind of uh, road to business success has been in ceramics. The Then you did move into a very different material. You did move into glass. Can you talk through kind of the genesis of how you got from the ceramics world into glassware? Of course. So I was, again, looking at antiques and the other thing I was seeing a lot of in terms of tableware, at least, was glass and antique cut crystal. And um, it struck me that cut crystal had suffered a lot of the same problems as bone china. Uh, most of the things I was seeing were beautiful and it was a lovely material, but the designs were very traditional. They were very busy. They were very ornate and you know, if I went and looked around the stores at the cut crystal, it was the same. It, it was very traditional. It was like stuff that my grandparents had. And I had a pretty good inkling that, you know, a younger generation would love cut crystal and they would want to buy cut crystal. But the designs had to be cleaner and they had to be more contemporary. Um, so the diamond collection was my first collection of cut crystal. And, uh, the 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 shapes in the collection are very simple they're just straight sided and uh we've taken a diamond cut which is the oldest cut uh that's been used on crystal for i don't know over 400 years and uh i i've applied it just to the bottom third and onto the bottom of the pieces in a way which is very clean very simple quite graphic um and then 
we focus really hard on the feel and the weight of the product as well. So if you pick up one of our cut crystal tumblers, they're really heavy. They've got this really kind of satisfying weight to them and the cut is nice and sharp and it's got this kind of brilliant tactile quality to it. Um, and I had and the luxury of, of handling one of the samples that came in um, before we shot them at Veroshop. And, and that was that heaviness is what I was really struck by. And it feels important. Like it feels luxurious. Like this is something that is, is it's different than what you're going to pick up. Even in a fancy bar, I feel like it felt like uh, even just the weight of it and obviously the beautiful look and feel and those beautiful ornamentations around the bottom, uh, it felt really special. Yeah, it does. And when you drink out of them, it's just unbelievably satisfying. I think, you know, it elevates uh, drink to a kind of another level of enjoyment and I think for me it's you know I'll, I'll finish the week and you know busy week Friday evening having a, a gin and tonic or a, a whiskey out of a glass like that is just really satisfying and it really does elevate that experience and I think you know for me people spend lots and lots of money on the the wine they like or the whiskey they like and then often will go and put it in a really terrible glass. And for me, that's just a real shame. You know, that that drink has been made with such care and attention and then it gets put in a really nasty, cheap glass that really takes away from the experience. So I, I think that, you know, it, it's all about trying to elevate those uh, kind of everyday moments and, and make them more special. And I do want to spend another moment on the design, too, because I can see it does throw back to kind of the Mad Men-esque tumblers that I see of days old from my personal experience. But it also does feel very modern and fresh. Like if this was sitting on my um, my bar table, then it would fit in really well while also kind of having a retro vibe. Can you kind of just talk through the design process again and, and some of those elements that you pulled in from what you saw in the past and how those manifest? itself in the in the diamond series glasses of course so so cut crystal um actually originates in in london in about 1600 and it was uh i'm, I'm gonna go on a boring history lesson now but um go away <laughs> at, at that time uh crystal started being produced in venice and venetian glass was what everyone, all of the the wealthy people in Europe wanted at that time. So all of the other glassmakers around Europe were trying to um, emulate this crystal that was coming out of Venice. And basically what they were doing is they were just experimenting with whatever they could find uh, to put in the glass to make the glass look as clear and as brilliant as that crystal. So there was a glassmaker in London who put lead oxide into the glass and he realised with the addition of lead oxide, not only did he create a glass that was really, really clear, uh, it was also softer and that meant it was suitable for cutting. So that's when cutting glass originated, um, when they made this development in London. And one of the very first cuts was the diamond cut. So if you look at cut glass over the last 400 years, you will almost always see a diamond cut. Um, it's usually combined with lots of other cuts as well. Um, 
So for me, I was like, okay, well, I love the material and I love the diamond cut, but I don't want to have cuts all over the pieces and I don't want it to be mixed. I just want to take that one cut, focus on that cut. And we, we've cut, the cut is quite a small scale as well. That's the other thing. Usually a diamond cut's bigger than that. And if it's bigger than that, it doesn't look nearly as refined and it looks kind of more traditional, more retro, I guess. Um, so so we realised we had to bring the scale of the cut right down. And um, like I mentioned, I wanted the forms to be really simple. So they're just completely straight sided. Um, and then the other thing we did, so we, we just applied the cut coming up the pieces by a third. Uh, but then it wraps around and it's cut on the bottom of the pieces as well. And I'd never seen any cut crystal where they'd actually taken a cut uh, or a diamond cut and applied it to the bottom of the piece. So those were the kind of things I was thinking about and looking at when I was designing it. And then the other thing that's really important is the shape inside the glass. Um, so there's a beautiful curve on the inside of the glass and you can only achieve a curve like that if you mouth blow a tumbler. If you machine blow it, uh, you end up with this really square inside shape. And that's fine, but it doesn't look as nice. When you pick up one of our diamond tumblers and you look into it, there's this amazing um, kind of fisheye refractory uh, kind of thing that happens and it refracts light and it just looks amazing. So it's another thing that just makes that experience better. Um, and it's another thing which makes our glasses stand out from, from something that's machine made. And, and I'm not being rude on my phone. I've actually pulled up the images on Veroshop and even there you can see that. And it's so nice to see um, those diamond cuts around the bottom. I do think that's very unique. I'm not a master like you are, but I've never seen that before. And you can see that really lovely kind of um, uh, rounded shape on the inside. I, I think the hand blown part is important. Can you explain what that is, why, why there's so much care and kind of historical reference toward taking that approach to creating this glass, aside from just the amazing shape that it can create? So mouth blowing uh, glasses, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's super traditional technique. It's, it's how glass has been made forever. And it's actually really fortunate in glass that we can still mouth blow things because it allows you to make relatively small quantities. Um, because actually when you're mouth blowing glass, you can even use wooden molds. So you can literally take a block of wood, turn the shape you want to create on the lathe and blow the glass into that wooden mold. Um, but you can do all sorts of things when you're mouth blowing glass, which you can't do with a machine. And one of the things I mentioned was, you know, controlling that shape inside a tumbler. Um, the other thing um, with our wine glasses is um, we wanted our glasses to be absolutely as thin as possible. And actually, you can't machine blow glass that thin. Um, machine just isn't uh, subtle enough. It, it, it would break the glass. So mouth blowing allows you to, to do things which machines can't do, whether that's making really heavy pieces with a particular shape inside or making something that's really super fine and super light. Um, or it's uh, creating, you know, 
stems which are beautifully drawn out of the glass uh, rather than if you had a machine and you were making a piece of stem where it often gets blown in three different pieces and they all get kind of fused together so it just uh, and, and shapes as well you know you're when you're machine making glass you are restricted to what shapes you can make um, because of the technology that exists today. Let's take a quick break from my chat with designer Richard Brendan to talk about why I wanted so bad to have him on the show. Yes, we do sell his products on Veroshop, but for me, this one is a bit selfish. You see, startup life is the best kind of crazy. At Veroshop, we created an exceptional and effortless shopping destination from literally nothing in less than a year. We move fast, so that also means the grind is real. Sometimes I only get a few moments a day to just slow down. I wouldn't change it for the world, but I will juice every savory bit of enjoyment out of that time. And for me, that means opening a bottle of wine that I probably spent too big a chunk of change on. Some days that's the Left Bank Blend or Sauvignon Blanc from my favorite vineyard in St. Helena called Round Pond, or a gruner to take home from my go-to local Santa Monica wine bar, Esters. The bottom line is, I want my time, I want my wine, and I want as little fuss as possible. That right there, y'all, is why I'm obsessed with Richard Brendan's glasses. They're a thing of beauty. They make that wine I'm definitely splurging on shine. And they can go in my dishwasher. I can be bougie and sensible at the same time, which is basically my divine state. If you'd like to indulge in the ways of Alex Barinka, you can get Richard's glasses with free one-day shipping on Veroshop. Just head to veroshop.com slash inspo and click on his episode. And first-time Veroshop customers can take 20% off their first purchase with the code INSPOWINE. That's I-N-S-P-O-W-I-N-E. All right, back to my conversation with Richard. And, and you mentioned the wine glass, which I have waited to talk about because uh, I told folks I'm sure I could have stretched out this entire conversation about just the wine glass, but I know that there's so much more brilliantness in your background to talk about it, so I've waited until now. Um, the the wine glass. Talk me through how that came about. Talk me through your your amazing partner in that venture and why this is so special. And, and let's go back to the beginning. Uh, so Jancis Robson is, is who worked with you on this. Can you kind of give us a little bit of her, her history and how your relationship with her came about? Of course. So I think, you know, through designing Cut Crystal, um, I'd already learned quite a lot about uh, glass production and different glass makers around Europe. Um, so I knew I had these phenomenal craftspeople to work with. And then I was also being asked by our customers uh, if I could design wine glasses. And they, I think, were all kind of suggesting we added wine glasses into our cut crystal collections. And I was really against that because I, I really like wine. And the last thing I want to do is drink a glass of wine out of a big, heavy cut crystal glass it's not the right thing to be drinking wine out of so I, I thought this was interesting and I, I knew a producer that made beautiful light glass so I had to think about it and I I really came to the conclusion that there was no point of me designing um, wine glasses if I tried to do it on my own because anyone that cares about wine and loves wine uh wants a wine glass that functions perfectly to get the most out of their wine. 
Um, so I had a chat with friends of mine in London and people in my network that know about wine. And I said, you know, if I was going to collaborate with someone, who who would you recommend? And literally everyone I spoke to said Jancis Robinson. So I was like, OK, well, Jancis seems to be a pretty good person to work with. Um, and I, I had to... She's kind of the expert, a... right? She's kind of the expert. <laughs> yeah, you know, Jancis, um, Jancis has been writing about wine for over 40 years, um, most of that time, uh, she's had a column at the, the FT. And on top of that, she's a master of wine, of which there are only about 300 or so in the world. And uh, she also uh, uh, is on the uh, committee that uh, chooses wine for the Queen's Wine Cellar, amongst other amazing things. So so Jancis is, is a pretty good person to work with. So I, I, I realised that would be great, but I didn't... Uh, know at the beginning how I was going to go about approaching chances. So, <laughs> of course um, not. The, the lady who uh, helps the, the queen stock her cellar doesn't seem like uh, her number's just right there in the phone book. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, had a, I had a think about it. And um, again, I went actually back to Walpole and I had a chat to the CEO of Walpole, Helen Brocklebank. And Helen said, well, I think the best person to introduce you is Lucia van der Post at the Financial Times, because Lucia had written about my work. And obviously, Lucia and Jancis both work at the FT. Um, so, so yeah, Lucia uh, made an introduction and um, Jancis wrote back to me and said uh you know Riedel are the biggest um and she said I, I like these glasses um and sort of gave me a bit of advice and really tried to close down the conversation and I wrote back <laughs> and I said no no I, I know this much I've, I've done my research I like wine I like wine glasses I think that we can do something that's much better than that and um Jancis said well, why don't we have a coffee? Uh, so we had a coffee and we sat down and Jancis explained to me um, that uh, she actually believed you only need one wine glass for every single type of wine. And when I Which say that... Which that's not I'm, traditional, right? Usually, well, I, I guess she's the master, but what I have always heard is that I'm not bougie enough if I don't have the right glass for my reds, for my whites, for my bubbly you know that's not what I've what I think most normal folks like me would have heard yeah I think so so I think having a different glass for every type of grape is a fairly modern phenomenon I think that's really come about since the 1960s um, and I think Riedel have done a really really good job of marketing that and they do make fantastic wine glasses um, but Jancis said to me she said she's never understood why white wine gets put in a smaller glass than red wine. She said it's discrimination. She said white wine is just as complex. It needs just as big a glass to get all of the aromatics out of the wine. Um, she explained that on her travels around the world, meeting with winemakers, they all really wanted a similar glass. You know, champagne producers hate champagne flutes because it completely closes down the aromatics of the wine and it doesn't allow the wine to release any of that. So you don't actually get to smell the wine. Um, 
and sherry producers hate those traditional little glasses that sherry gets put into um etc so um and she said you know so what we're going to do is we're going to create a wine glass that works perfectly for everything by applying logic and everything i've learned over the last 40 years and if we do that we will create a wine glass that works pretty much perfectly for every type of wine and on the very rare occasion there is a wine which might suit a glass that's an ever so slightly different shape the difference will be so marginal that the vast majority of people will not be able to tell the difference um so that's that's what we did so we we had a an hour-long meeting that first time we met and Jance has really talked me through what uh, the perfect wine glass needed to do and, and how it should be shaped. And um, Jance has explained that she wanted the widest part of the bowl to be 125 millilitres, which is a sixth of a bottle, um, because that's a, a really nice standard size pour if you're a sommelier pouring at a table. Um, if you've got a, a table of six people, you know you want to get one glass for everyone at the table out of a bottle or if you've got four people everyone needs to get a top up um and what that means is when you pour that perfect pour uh to the widest point of the glass you've got the maximum surface area on that pour as well uh, and, so and i do i i love that idea too and how she talked through that because not only is that practical and logical from a um a quantity perspective for that sommelier pour but also the piece about uh, the need to have a good experience for the folks who are actually enjoying the wine. I think that, and 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 my hunch will be, the, in the development of this, there's a continuation of both kind of the, the logical quantitative approach and kind of the humanistic approach in the dis- design decisions around um, around pulling this glass together. So I think the 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 functionality and the all of the different kind of things that Jancis required the glass to do kind of determined the shape of the glass. Um because not only did she want the widest point of the glass to be 125 millilitres, she then wanted the glass to taper back in as much as it could, um, so that the opening was really nice and small and trap the aromas so that you know actually it's fine you want to get the aromas out of the wine but then you need to trap the aromas so that you can actually smell them so they don't all escape but the opening still needed to be large enough that anyone can fit their nose in the glass so even if you've got a big nose you can still have a good sniff of the wine um and then Jance has sort of, you know, explained that obviously people that like wine tend to swirl their wine a lot to get those aromatics out of the wine so the the height of the bowl needed to be quite tall uh so that when you're swirling the wine doesn't want to come out of the glass um and then the other thing Jansa said was really really important was the thickness of the rim of the glass and uh she really wanted the glasses to be absolutely as fine as possible so that you almost don't notice there's a glass there when you're drinking out of them um which just makes the whole drinking experience so much more direct and uh, you, you haven't got anything there distracting you from the wine. So so all of those kind of features really informed the shape of the bowl of the wine glass. Um, I was very keen on the glass 
not being angular. I wanted the glass to be curved. I think there's been a big trend over recent years for wine glasses to go very angular and it's been kind of seen as a cool contemporary thing. Um, I just don't find it particularly attractive. That's my own personal view and it's subjective. Um, but I think, you know, we, we wanted to create a wine glass that was timeless. And I think actually by having a uh, a more kind of traditional um, pear-shaped, teardrop-shaped glass with a lovely curve. Um, I hope that people will still look at these glasses in uh, 50 years, 100 years and think, yeah, that's just a really lovely wine glass. Um, the other other things that Jantz has really uh, wanted in the glass, which we've kind of designed into it, um, she was completely adamant that the wine glasses had to be dishwasher safe. Um, and Jance has explained to me that she's never broken a wine glass in the dishwasher. She's only ever broken them, washing them by hand or polishing them. And I thought that was such a good point. People get so worried about putting nice things in the dishwasher. But actually, wine glasses don't get broken in the dishwasher. So um, we made the stem of the wine glass a little bit shorter than uh, some of our competitors so that they do, and we tested them in lots and lots of domestic dishwashers, so they fit in domestic and commercial dishwashers. Um, and then the, the foot of the wine glass is actually exactly the same diameter as the widest point of the bowl of the wine glass. And what that does is it actually balances the glass really nicely. Um, it kind of, it's a counterweight, so when you're swirling the glass, it doesn't get top heavy and want to kind of take on a life of its own. Um, <laughs> well, and that's so true. All the wine glasses I've ever broken, which unfortunately hasn't been a few because uh, you can't see me uh, down here, but I talk with my hands. Uh, my my breakage of wine glasses is usually at the table when I'm narrating some kind of story and flinging my hands around. It's rarely yeah. uh, out of the dishwasher. <laughs> I, I have the, the same issues too. <laughs> I, I, I tend to knock things over like that. But yeah, I mean, our, our wine glasses, I've, I've been using them at home very regularly now for, when did we launch them? Uh, over Just over 18 months ago. So I guess I've been using them for about two years whilst we were testing them as well. And I am yet to break one at home. Um, certainly have not broken one in the dishwasher because the dishwasher doesn't break wine glasses. I think the, the, the time when people are most likely to break them is if they are going to polish them. And there is a really, really great way of polishing wine glasses. Um, I've made a really terrible YouTube video about how to <laughs> polish wine glasses. So if anyone wants to look that up and watch it, they can. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's all about if you are going to hand polish them, knowing the right technique and using two cloths ideally and not holding the foot of the wine glass and twisting because that's how you break a stem on a wine glass. But, yeah, they are unbelievably strong glasses considering how ultra fine they are. And and I, I we talk a lot about it on this podcast, and it's kind of the crux of this podcast of of turning inspiration into reality. So you had all of these amazing ingredients. You had um, what Jancis thought would make the perfect glass. You have your uh, kind of foundational truths of making things that are timeless and making things that are functional. And all of those ideas on paper, you know, seem really great and beautiful. But then you have to actually make the thing and make sure that it is appropriate for all types of 
wine. Can you, aside from testing out all the different sizes of dishwashers, can you take us behind the curtain a little bit to what that development process looked like and the testing process to make sure that this is, as you call it, the wine glass? Yeah, of course. So we actually, um, we started out with with drawings. Um, so we, we've spoken a lot about the wine glass. I'll talk about the other pieces in the collection in a bit. But we, we started out with the drawing of the wine glass. And Jancis uh, and I looked at the drawing and we discussed the drawing and we made a few amendments after that first drawing just for little things that we thought needed tweaking. Um, a lot of them were over the stem length, actually. Jancis was really keen on going as short as possible um, because of the dishwasher thing. And I was like, well, we still need it to be long enough that anyone with a big hand can still pick it up comfortably. So we, we kind of got that to the, the ideal length. And then we after that, we made a rapid prototype. So in plastic, just to have a look at the form and just to check we were in the right ballpark. And, and that looked good. And then we went on to sampling and we were sampling to begin with, with three different glassworks in three different countries around Europe. And um, we made a round of samples with all of the factories and they came back in and I looked at them and kind of compared them against the drawings and sort of looked at how accurately they'd made the glasses. And then Jancis had the really tough job of testing all of the glasses so Jancis tried all of the glasses with lots of different wines and she sort of said right this one's the best then that one this one's not working as well uh, but I think we need to tweak this this and this and over a period of time and lots and lots of rounds of sampling we whittled it down quite quickly to two factories one of them just wasn't as good and then with those two factories we probably did I don't know six rounds of sampling with each and just making quite small changes every time and then every time the samples came back Jancis would test them with her team of wine writers for jancisrobinson.com and slowly but surely we got the glass to exactly where we wanted it to be and I think it was just before Christmas in uh, 2018 uh, Jancis uh, wrote to me and said um, yep the wine glasses are working perfectly I've I've had all of my writers for jancisrobinson.com over for a Christmas lunch and we've all tested it and it's perfect and it's working for every type of wine so that was that was really exciting. I, I knew at that point we had a product that we could launch um, because we we agreed we you know we wouldn't launch the product unless we genuinely believed it was the best wine glass out there. Um, and then it was, you know, that was great. But it was when we launched the wine glass um, that it was really exciting. And you know, the top sommeliers and the top wine writers and the top winemakers all around the world started to use the glass and everyone was saying the same thing. They were saying, you know, over 90% of wines you pour into this glass, it works better than any other glass we've ever used. And we've now got the, some of the best winemakers all around the world using the wine glass in their tasting rooms because they think it works best for their wine. So, you know, we've got champagne producers, including Laurent Perrier, using them in France. We've got 
uh, CVNE uh, or CUNE in uh, in Spain using them. We've got uh, Kathy Corrison in Napa using them. Um, we've got Pinot Noir producers in New Zealand in Central Otago using them. So that's really for me that's the thing which says we've we've nailed it because we've got all of these people making completely different wines saying this this wine glass works perfectly so uh it's it's been a fun fun um you know 18 months two years um journey uh developing this collection and launching it and it just kind of going from strength to strength and and that is, you know, when I, I know when I go and talk to people after this conversation and, and say, oh my gosh, the thought that went into these glasses, it's amazing. You should definitely add this to your home collection. The one point of pushback that I will have because you can get cheaper factory made glasses out there is, oh, Alex, but these are expensive. But I think everything you're talking through, um, the fact that they've been thought out to be something that you'll have for a long time because they're... Um, they're very sturdy, but also they are beloved by the best in the industry. And you could have the opportunity to actually enjoy your vino out of the same glasses. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Because that is frankly the the big um, question point that some normal folks who are not uh, in the in the wine rooms at the best uh, wineries and vineyards, it's that price point. Can you kind of just revisit that for us? So. Every single glass is mouth blown by uh, a team of four glass blowers. So they work in teams of four, and those four glass blowers can make between two hundred and three hundred glasses a day. The skill and the amount of time that goes into making every glass is just unbelievable. And I also think that you know, people um, don't necessarily these days. Um, associate as much value with homeware as they do with fashion or other things and I think you know people would be more than happy to spend that amount of money if not four or five times that amount of money on a pair of shoes Um, but actually you know if you like wine and you want to and really enjoy your wine to its best um, you're not going to enjoy your wine to its best if you buy a cheaper glass so why not spend that little bit of extra money and look after those glasses and use them whenever you want to, you know, have a relaxing moment and really enjoy something? Um, I think it's just, I think it's just kind of, it, it's a few different things. It's it's understanding how things are made and it's deciding actually what, what you want to assign value to in your life. And I think for me and for lots of other people, um, food and drink is something I enjoy more than almost anything else. And I'm, totally I'm in happy. that boat. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is my, when I have had the worst day, the thing I want to do is come home, cook something amazing, feel like I created something and open a really nice bottle of wine. I'm lucky I'm here in California. I spent about a year in San Francisco with access to Northern California as well. So I do have my lovely wine memberships and, and it is like, it's a self-care moment. It's a ritual moment. It's, it's a moment of, of kind of self adornment and, and contemplation. So why not use something that's in service of the thing of the wine of the, you know, whiskey that as a Texas gal, there's always whiskey too, that, um, is, is there for me to kind of unwind and appreciate myself and kind of my day and, and, and all of those little moments. 
it's treating yourself, isn't it? It's uh, you taking a little bit of time out to just really enjoy something, which I think is important. You know, we all work so hard and such long hours. Um, I get a huge amount of satisfaction from coming home after a long day at work and just having that moment to relax and drink out of a really beautiful glass and, and appreciate things. Um, and yeah, like I say, I think it's also, I, I think when people do pick up our glasses, especially when they drink out of them, they do realise they're drinking out of something that is very different. Um, and the reason it's very different and it feels so special is because of the way it's made. So we've touched on a lot of things. Um, I, I do want to just touch on the last thing that we carry from yours, which is the of water glass. Course. So the uh, so the, the water glass, there's a quite a funny story about the water glass. So I said to Jancis, right, well, what about a stemless wine glass? And Jancis uh, sort of pulled a face at me uh, <laughs> and uh, I realised I'd said something I really shouldn't have said. And uh, Jancis sort of explained, you really shouldn't drink wine out of a stemless glass. She said, you know, it's it's not really the done thing. Uh, you affect the temperature of the wine and you can't swirl the wine properly like you can when there's a stem. Um, and I said, well, that's fine. I totally understand that. But the reality is, from what I've seen all around the world, Jancis, particularly in America, is uh, a lot of people are drinking wine out of stemless glasses. And um, so Jancis said, OK, well, that that's interesting. Um, but she still wasn't really up for it. So I said, <laughs> why don't we why don't we call it a water glass um, and make it exactly the same shape as the bowl of the wine glass? And uh, we'll say it's a water glass. And Janice said, well, that's a good idea because you should always drink water when you're drinking wine. That's a responsible <laughs> thing to do. And also just from a, a, a setting a table point of view, it's really nice to have the two glasses so you can set the table with a water glass and a wine glass. Um, and Janice has agreed that we can say if you do put wine into that glass, it will be the best stemless wine glass on the market. Um, but she still doesn't necessarily approve of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So so folks at home do prefer stemless. The Somali police are not going to come after you because your the temperature of your hand is increasing the temperature of the wine by holding onto that that stemless exactly. glass. But I and do you know what. Go ahead. I, I probably shouldn't say this because Jancis will know. I I do drink wine out of the stemless glass uh, <laughs> at home on occasion. Not all the time. I use both, but sometimes if I'm just sitting on the uh, sofa watching a movie, um, you know, I quite like the stemless. You, you're much less likely to knock it over. It's <laughs> it's it's quite a practical thing. So uh, I'm I'm a big fan of both. That's all for my chat with designer and brand founder Richard Brendan. Have I convinced you to grab a set of his glassware? I want you to tell me about how you spend your downtime, wine or not, in the reviews for the show. Just go to the show page wherever you're listening to this podcast and tell me about your perfect chill moment. And I may even read it on the next episode. And as always, you can shop all the Richard Brendan pieces we talked about in this episode with free one-day shipping and free returns at Shop. Just go to veroshop.com slash inspo and click on Richard's picture. And don't forget the special code for first-time Veroshop customers. 
You can take 20% off your first purchase with the code INSPOWINE. That's I-N-S-P-O-W-I-N-E. Thanks for listening and see you soon.